This is Talking Animals on WMNF. My guest today is Wendy Clark, publisher of the Bird Watchers Digest, which was founded in 1978 by Bill and Elsa Thompson under pretty uh, modest circumstances in their living room in Marietta, Ohio. These days, 40 plus years later, the Digest is strong and robust with subscribers on every continent and offering coverage and products for bird watchers of varied passions and experience, birders of all stripes, you might say. The Thompsons have both at this point passed away, as has their son, Bill Thompson III, who served as publisher until he died last March from pancreatic cancer. His girlfriend Clark stepped into the role of publisher, and she presides over a sprawling operation, offering a wide array of content, including bird identification guides, publications, podcasts, and events. We'll touch on some of those things while exploring the appeal of birding and how someone might get started with that pursuit when we speak with Wendy Clark in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in the program, I'll speak with Martha Sullivan, an animal advocate who wrote a smart, interesting opinion piece for the Times of San Diego that dealt chiefly with horse racing. On the very day Sullivan's piece was published, Del Mar Racetrack experienced its first horse death of the summer. We'll speak with her about her piece, about Del Mar Racetrack, and about horse racing later on in the show. Right now, though, let's talk birds and bird watching with Wendy Clark with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Wendy Clark on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning, Duncan. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. My pleasure. I'm really happy to be with you all. Great. So I feel like there's so much ground to cover about you, about Birdwatchers Digest, about Birdwatchers themselves. But I feel the proper way to ease into this conversation is by starting with some important history. Maybe you could recount, as I just sort of touched on in my opening, the history of how the Birdwatchers Digest began. Sure. Well, um, it's a typical American story. Bill and Elsa Thompson. Elsa was originally from New Jersey, Avalon, New Jersey, and Bill Thompson Jr. grew up here in Marietta, Ohio. His parents had a dairy farm, and uh, Bill was a journalist. Um, He was actually at one point the press secretary for the governor of Iowa uh, back in the day, and uh, Elsa and Bill met at Marietta College in the 50s and uh, fell in love, got married. They were both musicians. And um, long story short, the family moved out to Iowa. He was uh, president of Central College in Iowa for a time. And they moved back to Marietta because he had an opportunity to come on board at Marietta College again um, in a fundraising position. So they moved back to Marietta. And Elsa got into bird watching. She read a, an article uh, that was in a column, really, that was in uh, every uh, issue of the Marietta Times newspaper, not to be confused with the New York Times. <laughs> okay. Very, very Thank you for clarifying. Good. Yes, yes, yes. And um, there was a, a very charming article uh, that she read, and she thought, well, that sounds fun. I'd like to get into that. And Elsa was such a character. She uh, was full of life, full of energy, never met a stranger, 
um, her nickname growing up was the Bayonne Sledgehammer. So that gives you some idea of Elsa's personality. She was she was so much fun. Wow. And um, and Bill um, was um, equally charming, a great musician. They were both people persons, you know, knew everyone in town. And so they were a great couple to have started this amazing publication. And um, they sat their three children down. They had three children. Uh, Bill, um, my partner Bill, who um, was the oldest, and then Andy, who um, was the middle, and he actually passed away this past May of oh my fifty-seven. Oh. So we've lost him to at fifty-seven. So oh my goodness, a tragic, tragic uh, eighteen months for for our family. And then uh, the youngest was Laura, and they set all three of their children down in the living room and said, "We're thinking of starting a bird watching magazine." and um, they said, we're going to have to dip into your college savings to be able to do this because we need some startup money. And they all voted, and they said, but it's up to you. And so the oldest was, well, I think Bill was like in 10th grade maybe, mm. and Laura was in 5th grade. And they all, of course, wanted to support their parents, so they were all in. And they started the magazine in 1978. <clears throat> I, I live in a house that is um, within view of where their house was. Um, sadly, when Elsa passed away last year, um, it was in a, a tragic fire in her house, and the house uh, burned down. But I, I bought this house that I live in now, so I can see where this house was, so I'm looking at it right now. And um, they sat down in the living room, decided to start Birdwatcher's Digest, and the rest is history, really. They they were just a great, um, outgoing, very smart, very personable family, and um, it takes, I think, people like that to start something from scratch. Uh, this was the first, I believe, the first for-profit uh, birdwatching magazine in the U.S. And sadly, or I guess gratefully, it's one of the last ones standing. Um, the COVID situation has not been kind to the publishing industry. So oh, yeah. um, we're, we're still going strong, but a few of our competitors have had to either go all digital or, or drop out altogether. So um, we're kind of hoping for the best that these small niche publications like ours can survive the the current pandemic. Well, a few reactions. First of all, I was going to say, and I will say now too, that since it's only been a, just a little over a year since you lost Bill's, my condolences there. Thank but I guess you. I, and I think I guess I knew about Elsa, but I don't think I uh, knew about Randy. Um, yes. Yeah. Andy. Um, Andy, I mean, it sorry. Was, yeah. it was a, no, that's okay. It, um, he was just a year younger than his brother wow. and um, was out for a run and came home and his wife, um, they sat down to breakfast, and he dropped his head and had a massive heart attack. So, oh, my goodness. Um, that was just uh, May 15th, I believe, was the date. So just wow. not even a couple of months. So um, they've lost uh, a lot in yeah. a very short time. And, um, and it's, you know, it's really affected our industry, too. I mean, a lot of people love this family. They've been sort of iconic in the industry for many, many years. And, <clears throat> excuse me, they are, uh, they are missed, and they're, they're very well loved. Yeah. Well, along those lines, maybe uh, before we move on, tell me three things about the Thompsons, any Thompsons that you find that you like, uh, that you think help account for the success of Birdwatcher's Digest, which, again, going strong, really, some 42 years later against a backdrop, as you noted, where it's uh, it's a real struggle, whatever you're publishing, but maybe even more so, like you say, a niche uh, publication like this kind. Right. Well, the entire family, I mean, they were just kind of a force of nature. They were incredibly charming, um, witty, smart. 
They were all great writers and communicators. And I really just had all the tools to, you know, to build this, uh, this thing we now call Birdwatcher's Digest, which one of our taglines is more than a magazine because yeah. we've in the, the past decade have expanded beyond um, just the magazine to uh, be quite diversified in other areas. But um, I would say their their personalities were just one of a kind. Mm-hmm. They, they were bigger than life personalities, every one of them. Um, Bill, my Bill and his father were both um, really great musicians. Elsa was a wonderful singer. In fact, that's how um, Elsa and Bill met originally. He was auditioning her for his band, and hmm. she was this sort of sultry alto, uh, you know, singer. And he asked her to marry him on their first date. So it's wow. just, her whole story is this would make a great, you know, movie or novel or something. Yeah, like well, it's, it's already never- making a great story. It's like, oh, I my know. gosh, this is uh, too much. Like, hey, I know we only had this one date, but I think we should get married. I love that. It's right off the yeah, bat. And, yeah, and I know. And her, her family, um, her father was um, Swedish. And um, the first time they met, uh, met Bill, um, he took built around their entire neighborhood in New Jersey and had him play the piano for everyone in their house. Back in the day, you know, everyone had a piano in, okay. in their house. Yeah. And um, he was so proud of his future son-in-law who could just sit down and uh, play anything. He was a great jazz pianist, a, a, a great a great piano player. And um, that that's kind of the, the story. So they, they were kind of destined for great things, I think, just because of this combination of two amazing humans that created this great family. But they're I would say, in a nutshell, their charm, their wit. Yeah. Um, they were very smart, and they were all just really great communicators. And all that being said, and then Elsa, and then my Bill, especially, they were all bird watchers. But but uh, Bill Thompson the third, and his mother Elsa became uh, very adept birders. And in fact, uh, Bill Thompson the third became known around the world as one of the world's leaders, leading communicate communicators with birding, bird watching. Um, and uh, wrote over 25 books on the subject, and wow. it, it's just, you know, leaves quite a legacy. That, yeah, boy, it sure sounds like it. And it also sounds like with all those qualities, they, uh, I guess, just kind of had an instinct, because I don't know how much in the late 70s people were just saying, hey, I kind of got into this birding thing, and now we're going to launch a magazine in the living room. <laughs> I mean, there's a certain exactly. amount of confidence or, or just a spirit of some kind that's su- super impressive about that. You know, I think some of the wisest, most successful people in the world are not afraid of failing. Yeah. Um, you have to be afraid, you know, unafraid to fail and have the freedom to fail, to step out and try something new. And they started this from scratch and this was before there was an internet before right. there were there were you know personal computers they they really started at old school and for years the magazine was was done the old-fashioned way with a layout and you know physically laid out every page exacto knife now, right <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah. seriously though i yeah. feel it's funny we're in the same building we've been in since 1980 um in fact we're selling it because we all work remotely now with the with the pandemic but I'm sure. I, I find exacto knives everywhere in the building so, yeah. so they did use them but wow. yeah so i i think i think they just were willing to take a risk at something that they thought was a fun themselves and um, they saw it growing they met some people in the industry that were just really you know you know smart creative people and they i think they knew they'd have some good support a man named roger tory peterson who's very well known um in the in the birding world um he he became a good friend and they just had the support they needed and 
there was no shortage of confidence in that family, that's yeah. for sure. So they, they stepped out and did it. Yeah, no, that's what really comes across is they were smart and capable and, and talented and uh, uh, sounds like without necessarily gloating, they knew that. So it's like, hey, the chance of this thing not succeeding, we don't even think about it. <laughs> well, I don't think they were going to accept defeat. Um, yeah. <clears throat> they were all, again, very, very driven, very determined and just. Um, such a loving, warm, welcoming family to yeah. everyone that I came in contact with. So they were they were good candidates to start it. For sure. Well, this is Talking Animals on WMF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And if you just tuned in, my guest is Wendy Clark, the publisher of the Birdwatcher's Digest, which is the name of the flagship magazine, but now really refers to a multimedia enterprise that includes bird identification guides, publications, podcasts, and events, etc. If you're a birder or aspiring birder or otherwise would like to ask Wendy a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So, Wendy, let's initiate a parallel, probably, or ultimately overlapping narrative, yours. So, tell me how you began bird watching, and, and then, of course, let's get into to how you cross paths with the Thompsons. Okay. Well, I became a bird watcher much later in life. Um, so I am a, a great poster child for anybody can start birding at any age. Um, many of my friends that I've met and the people who are expert guides around the world and that kind of thing, many of them started birding from the time they were very young. They just had an interest in natural history and birds. I was not that girl at mm. all. I did not grow up in a family with you know, a focus on the outdoors, nothing like that. And um, I was working as the chief operating officer for a destination called Lakeside Chautauqua, which is up on Lake Erie in Ohio. It's a Victorian village, and uh, it was basically a resort there. But we also happened to be a great birding destination Mm. in the spring and fall. So it was a double migration path for warblers that migrate along the Atlantic Flyway. And um, part of my role there was to oversee um, our event team, our group sales department, which managed about 600 events a year at that wow. location. Holy cow. And a few, I know, it was a big job. And a handful of those events were bird watching events. So when I came on board in 2008, there was already uh, an event underway. The planning was underway for the 2009 Midwest Birding Symposium, which, as it turns out, was being managed and, and developed by Birdwatcher's Digest, the Ohio Ornithological Society, and Lakeside, which, which I worked for. And so I came in and just sort of inherited the responsibility for this event as the host uh, organization. And that's how I met the Thompsons. That's how I met Bill. That's how um, I became a birder. I do have an interesting story about becoming a bird watcher because you know you can work in the industry and sort of rub shoulders but not really get into it yeah but i um it was 2009 and we were hosting this event we had about i would say 1200 people from you know all over the the region in the u.s at this event in this big auditorium uh, called hoover auditorium it's this big beautiful place in lakeside and everyone's sitting there i'm backstage bill is at the podium and he, he runs off the stage with his phone to me in the middle of, of giving a, a talk and says, how many people can you fit in your vehicle? And I thought, well, um, I had a, I was a, a hockey football mom at the time. I thought, well, mm. I could probably fit about 10 people in my vehicle. He said, well, park out back and I'm going to bring a bunch of people out, but don't tell anyone. So apparently what had happened is a rare bird had been spotted 
And if you're a bird nerd, you know how important that is. Yeah, stop, and, uh, stop everything, right? Yeah. Yes, and so the, this was like running rampant like wildfire. So, cell phones were, were relatively, you know, new, but everybody was texting one another that mm. rare bird had been seen. So I, I said, all of these people in my car, with, you know, we were totally breaking every law. There, there were no seatbelts. Everybody's crammed in like sardines, clowns in a Volkswagen. They all get in and... Um, they are, I'm listening to them talk as I'm driving, and I felt like I was at like a Star Trek convention or something. <laughs> it was the funniest thing. They're, they're talking about all these things, and I thought, this is going to either be the most interesting experience I've ever had or the weirdest experience yeah. I've ever had. As it turned out, it was a little bit of both. But we got to the destination. I knew where we were going, and um, everybody silently, very gingerly got out of the vehicle. There was already a group of people gathered at East Harbor State Park where this rare bird was apparently sitting in a tree. Of course, I look over and I see nothing. I just see people looking up at leaves. And I, I get out of the car, and everybody's very quiet, very silent, and they're looking at this bird. And uh, someone who whom now I know is a friend of mine um, from, from Zeiss Sports Optics invited me to look through a scope uh, to see this little bird. And to be honest, it was in fall plumage. It was not... Spectacular, spectacular to look at. It was just mm. very average-looking, tiny little bird. But what, what captured my heart and my attention was the story of this little bird. It had migrated from Central, um, well, Northern South America, Central America, all the way to Lake Erie, then all the way farther north into Canada, into the boreal region for the summer, and it was on its way back. And, um, and I heard it was endangered at the time, and uh, it was called a Kirtland's Warbler. And I was hooked. I saw this bird and I thought, wow, this little guy made it thousands of miles successfully. And, you know, I have trouble sometimes to go into the next state in my car. So, okay. you know, I was, I was impressed, impressed with this little bird. And that's how I started bird watching. Um, from then on, I uh, was involved in Bird Watchers Digest. Eventually, they hired me as a consultant. Then I came to work there full time. Um, we started, you know, this kind of gets into the, the things you want to talk about, but we started events, a travel company, um, a second publication, and um, the rest is history. Here I am. Yeah. Well, yeah, I want to circle back to the juggernaut that is a Birdwatcher's Digest in a few <laughs> moments. But let's stick with kind of your entry into birdwatching. So it sounds like, well, what you saw through that scope was, well, that's kind of cool, but I'm not knocked out by it. But the story behind it, I am knocked out by it. Yes. Yes, and I was, at the time, let's see, this was about 11 years ago, so let me uh, date myself here. I was 42, and it was September, and um, anybody who is a bird watcher or any kind of naturalist or interested in, in natural history, um, there are two major migrations, you know, in the U.S. with birds um, in the spring and the fall. Um, we have an Atlantic flyway, we have a grassland kind of flyway through the middle of the country, and then we have the Pacific flyway, and migration does happen um, in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, twice a year. And the best times for birding, there are always good birds, let me say, first of all. But, but to get the, the migratory birds and to see them, um, you know, spring and fall are the, the kind of the hot times for birders. And if this was the fall, so I got kind of hooked during fall migration. But I thought, this is so interesting. It kind of appeals to all the things that I love. Um, I'm kind of a lifelong learner. I love to study things. I um, I love kind of digging deep and, you know, learning about, you know, creatures and how things work and why yeah. things happen and all of that. So it, I, I think birding appeals to people who um, 
are, you know, are thinkers. Uh, they, they love the outdoors. They love kind of the story of nature. And, you know, we, we act like nature is this pristine sort of hallmark hard experience. And it is, but it's also quite, you know, cruel. If you watch the nature channel or any of the shows, you know, you're, you're, you're never, uh, not surprised by, you know, how cruel nature can be at times. But I, um, this just sort of woke something in me, uh, to use the, the term woke that's yeah. being thrown around. But it really did. It awakened something inside me that was very passionate about about nature. And I just grew to love birds. My Most of my um, contact with birds was, you know, Hitchcockian in nature. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I watched the birds, the movie, and I yeah. thought, well, you know, they, they attack you, and it's bad. <laughs> yeah, and, there's nothing know. good here. I, yeah. No, and I yeah. saw them, and, you know, they pick your eyes out. And, you know, but seriously, though, it, I, I really fell in love with birds and birding and learning about um, even things like climate change and, um, you know, the things happening in our environment that affect birds. The birds are kind of ambassadors for nature in a way because they can tell us what's happening with the world. They're kind of a thermometer on how, you know, the rest of the, the rest of nature is doing, to be honest. And yeah. um, since um, during, I have not worked uh, seamlessly with Birdwatcher's Digest since that time. I actually left for a few years. I wanted some international birding experience. And um, I went to work for BirdLife International, which in, in Cambridge, England, which is the largest uh, birding conservation organization in the world. They're in over 120 countries. And then I worked for Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Tours for a time. And they are uh, the world's largest bird watching tour company based in South Africa. So I got my international experience that, that wow. I wanted. And then I, I came back to Birdwatcher's Digest actually when Bill passed away. Um, we were living together at the time, and we were together, but I, uh, in all of my wisdom, felt it might be a good idea if maybe if we're going to be partners that we not work together every day, too. Mm. So I, I kind of pursued some other interests, and yeah. um, but then when he got sick, he, he asked me to, to take the reins when we knew he wasn't going to survive the cancer, and um, I reluctantly accepted, you know, it's kind of a hard act to follow. He was he was quite a person, so yeah. I, you know, hum- humbly came back, and I'm so glad I did. It's, yeah, it's been a, gr- a great experience. Well, and boy, also heading off to BirdLife International and then the touring thing in, in South Africa, it seems like that underscores your, uh, among other things, your lifelong learner desires, yeah. right? Yeah, it, so. it, it did, it, and it's, it's a little bit of a patchwork. Um, quilt of a resume for me, but th- those were some elements that um, I raised three children, too. I have uh, three grown children. They're 28, 25, and 23. Wow. Uh, the oldest is married, and has I have two grandchildren as well, and so I had spent most of my younger years, you know, working full-time, but not in a the kind of role where I could travel the world and yeah. kind of pursue international business and all of that. I was raising kids, and, sure. um, you know, they were older, and uh, I just felt like I really wanted to, to kind of look at birding and conservation and um, this passion I had from a global perspective. And those years, the three years that I was away were invaluable. And actually, it's one of those things where all things kind of work together. Um, it, it turned out to be instrumental um, experience, you know, invaluable experience for me as I came back to Birdwatcher's Digest. Because if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't be as well prepared wouldn't have been as well prepared for it as sure yeah it sounds like it really expanded your experience and your professional accomplishments and and uh, yeah so from that global kind of passion that you talk about let's shrink down just for a moment 
Uh, I think we've already established when you first saw that bird through that uh, scope at the night of the dinner, not <laughs> yeah. necessarily knocked out, but but certainly intrigued by the story. So when did seeing a bird or bird watching itself first thrill you, and and why did it first thrill you? I would say that I was, I would say that I was first thrilled by birding in that moment. I, well, I was kind of hooked in that moment, but the, the first time I saw a bird that thrilled my heart was a few years later. And I had been birding. I'd been out with, you know, everyone just learning, learning, learning. I felt like all of my friends were experts because working in the industry as I was, um, I, you know, everybody that I went birding with had like written a book or they were expert at something. And so I just felt like I need to just listen and keep my mouth shut and learn. And I just soaked everything up. And um, I learned a lot in a short time. I still, even to this day, even though I've been birding 11 years, I still feel very much like a beginner compared to <clears throat> many of the people around me and many of the people on my staff, in fact, because I'm, you know, I'm not a birding expert. Um, my, most of my expertise is in the business realm yeah. rather than, you know, the birding realm. But I, you know, I'm a, I'm an above average birder, I would say. And I, you know, learned a lot about birds, but the, the first bird that thrilled my heart and we call this the spark bird. Um, if you're, if you're a bird watcher, mm. it's a bird called a scarlet tanager. And it's bright, glowing red with black wings. And I saw it in West Virginia a few years um, after I had seen the Kirtland's Warbler at an event called the New River Birding and Nature Festival in the New River Gorge of West Virginia. And I was there with Bill, and uh, we were on a hike and uh, looked up and saw this bird. And, you know, it was love at first sight. I'm not going to lie. I know it sounds weird, but I saw this thing, and the heavens opened, and oh! It was this beautiful, wow. beautiful creature, and um, that was the that was the moment of passion for me. And I thought, yeah. you know, I just really want to do this the rest of my life. And it is something you can do the rest of your life. You can do it from your. I'm sitting here in my living room, looking at goldfinches at a feeder outside my living room window, on a very busy street where I live. You know, trucks going by, cars going by. Birds are everywhere. Yeah. They're in your backyard. If you live in New York City, I've done some of my best birding in Central Park in New York City and in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Um, you can bird in an urban environment. You can bird in the country. You can bird anywhere. Birds are everywhere, and you can get into it regardless of where you live or how much you know. Yeah. Well, this might lead me in a couple of further questions about getting sort of into birding. But in terms of that thrill that you just described with the, the Scarlet Tanager, uh, from what you've gathered professionally and personally, I guess, is the thrill of birding, the, the feeling that goes with that pretty much universal? Or does it vary a little bit from personality type to personality type? Or You know, there are so many personality types that yeah. get into birding. Yeah. <clears throat> it does, I will say, it does appeal to the competitive person who sort of okay. likes to rack up a list. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people we call listers in, in the UK. And I, I have a lot of global, you know, birding friends now yeah. in, in the UK. They call, and in Europe, they call them twitchers. These are people who are fanatical and they'll chase rare birds and go see them. And of course, if you are at all acquainted with Monty Python and things like that, you know, birding in the, in the UK has always been kind of a thing and, yeah. you know, they, they kind of make fun of it and, you know, but, but seriously, it was popular there long before it was popular here. And, um, but I think as far as personalities go, it's really for everyone. Um, I, I'm not a lister. Um, I'm there. There's a, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has a program called eBird, and it's a fantastic program. And it's citizen science. You 
you go into this app and this program and you list the birds that you see in a specific area and it just helps the entire world to know where birds are, how healthy they are, where they're migrating, that kind of thing. I'm not on eBird because I, I just like the experience that mm. and, and how I feel when I'm in nature. I love, my favorite way to bird, honestly, is going to what we call our favorite patch. Um, I have a park across the street from me and every day, of the year, I walk over there and just look around and see the birds. I, I'm I'm much more of a casual birder and not an intense birder, even though I've gotten some birds all over the world now. And I, I just love the experience of seeing birds in nature, and it's just very calming in yeah. our anxious time. Um, I that's my personal sure. Appeal. Yeah, um, well, it sounds like it means different things to different people, and how it does. how they manifest it is different from person to person. It really does. But I tell you what, if you're a a sciencey person or a competitive person or a very meticulous, detailed person, birders can really um, get down in the weeds with, like, identification. And, yeah. you know, they will argue with each other about things. And it's, it's really kind of fun. So it, I think it really, it's kind of universal. And it, it yeah. appeals to everyone, whether you're someone like me that I get inspired to write music and poetry and stories, you know, from what I see, other people are wanting the you know more of the scientific end and that that appeals to them so it's it's, it's kind of a universal appeal yeah well i want to come back to like how someone might get started one sec but when you mentioned earlier that you were looking out and seeing, looking at a feeder that ties into one of our emailers question oh, it says hi there nice show topic please share about the florida hummingbird scene in pinellas it says i heard there were springtime sightings i purchased a feeder have many hummingbird attractor flowering plants but no visitors in years past I've seen a larger type in fall. I read they are present around here from spring to fall, correct? Seems more sightings in North Pinellas. I live in St. Pete. So, um, yeah, there, she- are, there are hummingbirds. Um, in, in Florida, you do get a few um, additional ones. Most of the hummingbirds on the eastern half of the U.S. are ruby-throated hummingbirds, and they are, we have a male and female. Um, in Florida, you can get some that, that come up from the south. Um, you know, you get a few more sort of tropical ones. Um, hummingbirds are everywhere, but it sometimes it takes them a while to find a hummingbird feeder. Um, one thing I would say on our website, BillRogersDigest.com, you can find out more about feeding hummingbirds, where to put your feeder, um, how to, you know, how to fill the feeder properly. A lot of people will buy hummingbird food with red dye, you know, at, you know, Walmart or whatever, and you really want to make your own. It's super easy to do. You basically boil water and put sugar in it. Um, three parts to one part, and it um, that is what the birds love. Mm. Um, and, and there are some other things they like too. Um, here in Ohio, we put out oranges cut in half um, that draw orioles and hummingbirds and lots of other birds too. But I would say go to go to our website. It's it's kind of a deep question as far as like why am I not attracting hummingbirds? Yeah. But yes, you you would see them in the spring and fall. But actually, right now um, through August in the eastern half of the U.S. especially is about the best time to see them. There yeah. now is the time. So they um, they don't migrate like um, other birds do. Um, they they usually at least here in the eastern U.S. I would say in Florida they arrive in March, February, March, and they stay um, you know through the fall. 
Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're here in that part, warm part of the, the world in the eastern half of the U.S. They're, they're there about, you know, eight, nine months of the year. So it sounds like for our emailer, it might just even be a, a simple matter of just tweaking what's in the feeder. The, the type of feeder, what's in the feeder, what yeah. you're putting in the feeder. Um, and, you know, I've had a hummingbird feeder in my backyard. This is my first full year. I moved in this house a year ago, and I have yet to see a hummingbird at my hummingbird feeder. And oh, I've had wow. it out okay. all summer. And I live in a kind of an urban area, but it's wooded. I've, I've kind of expected to see some hummingbirds, but yeah. I haven't seen any. So again, not every place is going to attract them. Um, usually, the, you can see them in urban environments, but usually they like quieter, uh, more rural, you know, wooded habitat. Yeah. Um, but you can see them in a city, but it's more rare. You're going to get a lot more birds at your theaters that are, you know, easy to see in a, in a more urban environment or, you know, a suburban environment. Gotcha. All right. So, Wendy, how does somebody get started? So they're hearing this thing and they're swept up in your story about the inspiration and the passion that you feel. And yet probably taking note that compared to some that you're not competitive about it, not a list or whatever. But just in broad strokes, what if someone says, you know what, this sounds really cool. And I'm sort of thinking about this for a while. How do I get started? Well, the best way to get started, not to sound like Captain Obvious, but just look, look, go look at a bird. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Wherever you are, start noticing the birds. Yeah. Um, you could be in, in a parking lot, you know, and looking at pigeons eating French fries off of concrete. Start looking at birds. I have a friend who, um, you know, got interested in birds because of looking at house sparrows, which is the most common bird, I think, in the United States. And uh, we're, we're just fascinated. She saw them everywhere, and she really got into it. Just start noticing birds. Um, if you want to take it to the next level and, and really start looking at birds in a more in-depth way, you do need a decent pair of binoculars. Yeah, that was my um, next question. Yeah. Yeah. What, 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 what should a brand new person, so you're obviously not going to go nuts, but what should they expect to spend to really be able to take a good shot at seeing the kind of birds they're hoping to see? Well, Duncan, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. Okay. We live in the golden, we live in the golden age of optics for birding yeah and you can get a really good pair of binoculars for about two hundred dollars okay. and uh, 10 years ago you really couldn't we we um one of the businesses that we started through bird watchers digest not to toot our own horn is red is red start birding and we sell birding optics uh optics and gear um we have on our website redstartbirding.com we have birding optics from $99 and up um if you if you have a pair of binoculars that's super cheap and inexpensive. It's like, it's kind of like a car, you know, you kind of get what you pay for. Mm. Um, the people that have been birding a long time, you know, the veterans are really into the sort of luxury models. And that's a great way to go. If you have a, a generous budget and you can, you know, dive in at $2,000, that's awesome. Yeah. But you don't have to, you, okay. you can start off and, and think about any hobby that people have, especially here in the U.S. You know, people don't mind investing in something that's important to them. Sure. If you're starting something, you, you're not really sure if you're going to be that into it. The great thing about buying a good pair of binoculars is that you can use them for other things. I carry them with me to sporting events when we used to have sporting events. Yeah. I, I carry them with me when, you know, even when I'm on a drive in the car and I, you know, I live here on the Ohio River. A lot of times I'll just stand at the river. I'm not looking at birds. I just want to see what's, you know, not close to my eyes. I want to be able to see far away. So binoculars are a great investment just to have because there are always things that you can look at, you know, besides birds. But I would invest in a, a decent pair of binoculars. Um, we have really great consultants that help you kind of find what meets your 
your lifestyle, your budget. Yeah. You know, if you're a, a newbie, a beginner, we have books that are, um, you know, help you get started, um, a field guide. And there are so many apps for your phone. Um, I use a couple uh, different apps on my phone to help me identify birds. And when you're just getting started, you know, you're trying to learn the difference between a robin and a sparrow. You know, what what is the difference? What does sure. it look like? And you can, you can get... Um, apps. I use the Sibley app on my phone, but there are so many great apps. There's a Merlin app, really great apps. Um, I have a, a Peterson, a Roger Tory Peterson field guides of uh, Eastern North America. It's a little book and I can look up all the birds. You know, when I don't know what something is, I'll come home and, and look it up. And that happens to me still all the time. I mean, yeah. you know, birds, depending on the time of year you're looking at them, whether they're male or female, whether they're juveniles or, you know, full grown adults, they look very different. Uh, I say all the time, I wish all the birds would sit still like they do in the field guide and look mature like they do, but they don't, you know, so it's, it's part of the fun of birding is, is the ID process is sure. figuring out, you know, what the birds are. But if you want to get started, I would say get a good field guide, either an app or, or a book, um, and get a, a decent pair of binoculars. If yeah. all of that together, you're looking at, you know, a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. Well, like you say, with sort of almost any new hobby or thing, you're going to spend a few bucks to probably get started, and uh, mm-hmm. and this this seems like that could carry you a long way because <laughs> wherever yeah, you are, you there's going to be birds, and uh, so right. But yeah. if you don't have two hundred dollars lying around right now, and a lot of people don't in this economy, yeah. you can still enjoy them. Get out for a walk. Sure. Get outside, walk in your local you know park or you know lake or pond or body of water. Birds always you know, always see birds around water and just start looking at them, start noticing them, come home and, you know, get on the internet and try to figure out what it is you saw. And maybe you already happen to know the difference between a blue jay and a great blue heron. You know, a lot of people know more than they think they do. So, you know, just start noticing birds. Um, Some people that are getting started, they'll take notes. They keep a little, uh, a little notepad with them and they Mm -hmm. write things down. Um, but pay attention. I would say the biggest change in my life from birding uh, as a result of birding is I was missing an entire world, an entire subculture that was right under my nose mm. all the time because yeah. I wasn't paying attention. And I, yeah. I have such more, I have a lot more patience. I pay much more attention to detail now. Yeah. Um, I'm a you might not have been able to tell, but I'm very type A and driven and go at life 100 miles an hour. And I really learned to slow down and appreciate the little things and the things that I wasn't noticing before. So yeah. that's, that's a benefit of birding. And it's being recommended by a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, medical doctors for people to take up this hobby because it's good for you. Yeah. It's good for your emotional and physical health. It gets you outside. It, it's calming and um i there are just umpteen articles about that that you can find on the internet about how birding has has really saved people who were just drowning in stress and anxiety yeah well again this is talking animals on wnf i'm duncan strauss my guest is wendy clark the publisher of bird watchers digest and appropriately enough we're discussing bird watching so uh we're in our final <laughs> couple of minutes or so we invite you to join the conversation though by calling 813-239-9663 emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885 and one of our follow-up emails i uh, wanted to just double check so it's birdwatchersdigest.com for the website is that correct wendy correct Okay. And then if you're interested in birding objects or gear or books, 
it's redstartbirding.com. But you can actually link to that through birdwatchersdigest.com. Okay, but so both of those websites are a great way to get started. Okay, that's great. And then we had a follow-up email based on our hummingbird conversation with someone saying, my bottle brush trees in flower and red hibiscus bring in the hummingbirds. So that's <laughs> they there. sure do. There you go. That's so. a great, that's a great tree. And, and you can, um, we also have so much content um, on our website, and you can just Google this too, but you can plant native plants and trees in your yard regardless of what part of the country you live in that attract birds in your area. And that's a really important thing to do. Um, that's obviously a little higher on the on the food chain sure. know, when, you, when you get into birding, but um, just like you can plant, you know, milkweed to attract, you know, monarch butterflies, other, other things like that. There are There are plants and they all are native. So it's kind of getting back to the basics. It's like the plants that were intended to be here in the first place, we didn't bring them in from another country or a florist or something. They were supposed to be here, and they attract and actually nourish the birds in the area, too. So it's it's all very uh, kind of copacetic and, you know, circle of life kind of stuff. Gotcha. All right, Wendy. Well, uh, sadly, we have reached the end of our time. I feel like there's so many more things we could have touched on. Maybe we'll talk again sometime uh, in the future, but this has been Wendy Clark. She's the publisher of Birdwatchers Digest. As we noted, the website is Birdwatchers Digest, and that can link to all kinds of other uh, related websites, but it's chock full of information and content and guidance and who knows what else. So, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. Thank you so much for having me, and I just encourage everyone to get outside and, and, and look at birds. All right, cool. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. In a moment, I'll speak with Martha Sullivan about the piece she recently published about horse racing relative to the Del Mar racetrack, running horses again in its summer season. And already one horse has died. Right now, that we're going to step into the comedy corner. This is Martha Kelly with a piece that touches on orcas and SeaWorld connecting to last week's guest in a way. Filmmaker William Neal and his film about orcas. And also connects those sort of briefly to the conversation we're about to have with Martha Sullivan about horse racing. So here's Martha Kelly with a piece called Horses Hate That We Ride Them in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Obviously, I love animals a lot. And um, I recently have become a vegetarian and also kind of an animal activist. Um, I'm not in PETA but I have watched Blackfish a bunch of times, and uh, I bring it up at the drop of a hat. And if you haven't seen it, it's a documentary about this killer whale that was captured from the wild when he was a baby, and he's lived in captivity his whole life, and he's killed three people, and the last one was his trainer. And um, he's not the only killer whale in captivity that has attacked trainers. There's another one that killed a trainer, and then there's a bunch of them that have attacked and injured trainers. And SeaWorld has been around for over 50 years now. I just feel like it should be really obvious at this point that we need to stop encouraging these whales to pursue careers in show business <laughs> because they are super unprofessional. <laughs> and they should... Oh, well... Thanks, guys. I was kind of nervous about taking a drink of water. I was afraid I was going to accidentally throw it in my face, but um, little, a little high energy. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, I also 
One of my other radical ideas about animal rights is I don't think that we should ride horses anymore. I feel like they really hate it. Um, they have to hate it. Because if they didn't, then how come we never see horses giving rides to other animals in the wild? <laughs> it seems like something they would do. It would be super cute. Um, that was Martha Kelly with a piece called Horses Hate That We Ride Them, taken from her Comedy Central special. Now it's time to speak with Martha Sullivan about her written commentary piece and about horse racing more broadly. This is Martha Sullivan on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Martha. Good morning. Thanks How are for, you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us, and especially I know you're, we're uh, connecting with you in California, so it's a bit on the early side there, but thank you so much for uh, making the time. So I've gushed privately to you and, and, and publicly uh, on social media about the commentary piece that you wrote for the Times of San Diego, published on July 11th. I urge people to read it. You can just simply search probably for Times of San Diego, Martha Sullivan, and horse racing, and it'll probably pop right up. But maybe you could briefly outline its key tenets and what prompted you to write the piece. Uh, well, thank you, Duncan. Um, it's actually been percolating in my head probably for a few years now. And what really prompted it, I believe, is, interestingly enough, is... Black Lives Matter protests this spring, which hmm. I participated in for several years as well. Yeah. But it really struck me, this double standard. Uh, you know, most people abhor, like, dog fighting, but we haven't yet banned horse racing. And a, a big difference between the two is in media, you know, you often see dog fighting associated with, you know, mostly men of color. And horse racing is run by pretty much rich white men. So that's what really kind of brought it into focus for me. So, you know, it, it gave my thinking kind of a framework. And uh, it really struck me. And I, and I think it's true. I, I think that there is a double standard. And I wanted to you know, bring this out and point it out to people. And it seemed like a good time to do it. Yeah. Well, again, I urge people to uh, track that down and, and read it. And on a very related note, uh, horse racing just seems to be producing more and more horse deaths. And as I noted, the day, I mean, later in the same day that your thing was published, so they weren't directly tied, but uh, sadly coincidental, that the first horse death at Del Mar of the summer season, at least, happened the same day that your piece was published. So why, in a nutshell, if, if such a thing can happen, why are there more and more horse deaths uh, in, in recent years? What's well, changed? You know, the reality is there aren't more and more horse deaths. There's always been a lot of horse deaths. Okay, so there's more reported? Uh, it's because media is reporting on it. Yeah. As, as with so many things. You know, there's always been a lot of black people, sadly, terrorized and murdered. But we have media reporting on it more. It's a similar thing here. I'm not trying to relate or equate the two, but it's a similar dynamic in that last year, you know, last spring, media grabbed hold of, you know, 30 and counting deaths at the Santa Anita racetrack. And that became a big, you know, media controversy. 
And that has continued since then. People are more aware of it. And once they realize what's really behind, you know, the stupid hat contest and so forth, you know, they reject it. So we, we, you know, this year's uh, killing spree is at another Southern California horse racing track, Los Alamitos, who, uh, which just had its 31st kill for 2020. Uh, announced by the California Horse, Horse Racing Board on Monday morning. Yeah. So uh, between this uh, and also all the COVID-19 infections that are being reported among the traveling jockeys, but also we just have a news report from the LA Times that the Santa Anita racetrack uh, now has 38 reported COVID-19 positive cases. Yeah. And most it, of those workers have moved to Del Mar for the summer. Right. No, this just seems like as if things weren't nightmarish enough in the horse racing world, then this the, the COVID element, which, of course, is a nightmare for all of us, no matter where we are, what we do. But as you noted, it's on the move with just within the horse racing world because of the people that work on horses and horse races and whatever. But, you know, the scary thing is, I mean, it's horse racing as a whole is scary. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the thing is, is that when you have several hundred workers who live at the track. And as I say, in the summer, they move en masse from Santa Anita up uh, in L.A. down to Del Mar in San Diego County. And we've been there three times now since um, last week. And we've been protesting and otherwise stationed by the stable gate that most of the backstretch workers use. And the pedestrian and bicycle and vehicle traffic in and out of that gate is constant. So they're not staying inside the racetrack. Yeah. They go out, you know, they buy food or they buy other supplies or they go out, you know, maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know if they visit anybody or what they do, but they're not, you know, as much as the horse racing industry wants us to think they're not, you know, a sealed ecosystem, as they like to refer to it. Yeah. Well, we're quickly running out of time, Martha, I'm afraid. But, I mean, the COVID-19 thing is just hellish everywhere and, and certainly now become a key element of the horse racing story. But what do you think... It will take, I mean, uh, leaving the COVID-19 aside for a moment, if that's even possible, to institute reforms or otherwise improve the situation in horse racing. You know, reforms aren't going to stop horse deaths. We've yeah. seen that. Yeah. The only thing that stops horse deaths is not racing. Okay. And I, I think what is going to take that to happen is that it costs them too much money to raise horses. Yeah. And they're not making enough money to justify that cost. Right. Well, like everything that's sort of awful in this way, it does come down to money. And uh, so maybe that's uh, some... Well, they're not going to do it out of their conscience. Right. No, that much I think is clear. <laughs> yeah. So, Martha, I'm so sorry we are at the end of our time, but I uh, appreciate your piece and I appreciate you joining us today on Talking Animals and hopefully we'll talk again. You're very because, welcome. And You're we, very welcome. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We just about have reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Laurie is up next with Radioactivity. I hope you'll uh, 
Stay tuned for that. And I invite you to return next Wednesday when my guest will be Dr. Brian Hare, a professor at Duke, where he founded the Duke Canine Cognition Center and is the co-author of the brand new book, Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origin and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. So that's next Wednesday here on Talking Animals at 10 a.m. on WMNF. This is Talking Animals on WNF, Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. Stay tuned for NPR News headlines and Rob Lorai after that. Thanks. <laughs>